Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Recorded live. Fragments of Silicon, where sometimes you just don't know how long an update is going to take. Um, so welcome to another installment of Gone, another um, secondary show. Uh, usually when we do a Tuesday show, it's in the middle of the morning, but you know this time around we got somebody from the West Coast, so we're doing it now. Um, anyway, so this time around we're interviewing Douglas Bogart of Limited Run Games. Hello, I'm Hello. Douglas Bogart. Yes, uh, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? We're doing fine. Uh, uh, at least I think we are. <laughs> uh, a little bit frustrated, but as I alluded to, but uh, nothing serious, and uh, everything seems to be going okay now. Windows uh, updates. Uh, yep. Which can always be infuriating. Um, well, it would be anything if they like gave you any kind of indication, oh, by the way, this update might take an hour. <laughs> well, it's like if they told you that, you'd never do it. Yeah. No, I just or you have it set to do it after you go to bed. Yeah. Besides, you can't make it not do it anymore. I'm like, anyway. Well, with Pro, you can, but that's beside the point. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, so convenience aside, um, let's see. So, given that this is a secondary show, we get right into the interview. So, and we by asking, um, what first got you interested in video games? Are you asking me? I'm yes. sorry. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I'm just not used to. Yeah, I'm just not used to so many people in a thing. Um, <laughs> what first got me interested in video games, like playing them or like uh, like making physical ones? Um, both. Like, um, what got you interested in like video games in general, and then what got you interested in you know uh, doing video games as a profession? Um, I've been into video games since. Uh, let's see. Before I have any real memories, um, so like I, I grew up in like the I was born in like the late '80s, so I kind of grew up with uh, having like an NES and Atari in the house. Uh, my first real console for myself, I guess, that I have a conscious memory of getting for like Christmas was like a Super Nintendo, um, and then I just remember having that. Born uh, of my mom uh, was one of the ways I learned how to read actually. Uh, she said I was reading, like, books to her, like, when I was, like, three or four before I was actually in formal school learning how to read because I'd been playing so many video games and been familiar with text, and uh, my dad would play with me, and, like, he would, like, kind of tell me what that stuff said. So video games has kind of been a part of my life for a really long time, and then um, I, I always knew I wanted to get into video games, like, when I got older, um, either that or music or something to do with film, something in the entertainment industry. Um, 
So Josh, the other half of Limited Run, um, had like basically the same ideas as me, like music, video, or games. Um, but then when he got a little older and got more through college, he became more focused on video games. Um, and having grown up with him, uh, eventually my views kind of changed that way too as a profession. And then we started uh, Limited Run Games together. So I guess that's it. <laughs> right. It's not an uncommon story we hear on the program. Like, you know, we we have a lot of developers that, you know, started out as two people coming together, you know, mutual affection of video games and all that. Um, anyway, um, but it's not just limited run, as I understand it. There's also a development studio, Mighty Rabbits, correct? Yeah, correct. Uh, Josh started Mighty Rabbit Studios, uh, I think, like five years ago. Um, and I was uh, I did a lot of testing with them. Um, I was kind of like the, the tester that got hired uh, like whenever they just needed extra help and because we were already friends. And then uh, I was at Ubisoft doing, like, technical and customer support and other random things that they had me do. And they had a massive layoff, and I was still doing uh, part-time testing with Josh, and he, Mighty Rabbit was kind of struggling at the time. He was like, hey, I'm about to try this new project out. Um, since you're not, like, you know, a developer, per se, in terms of, like, um, programming or, like, busy with the task or anything, and the, the game you're testing on is kind of, like, running out of funding, uh, would you like to jump into this scary new territory with me, and let's see if we can do something? And, you know, we did it with Breach and Clear as a test, and then it, it was kind of a runaway success that we didn't expect. How much of a runaway success? Um, well, I guess it also depends on who you ask at Limited Run, because Josh had more of the mentality that Breaching and Clear being a Vita game, and at a time when Vita was considered dead and still is considered to some people, uh, he thought it might take a month or it may not sell out at all. I was a little more optimistic and thought it would sell out in about a week, um, and I'd say Runaway Success being the fact that it sold out in 108 minutes. Wow. That, that's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, of course, it's less surprising considering, like, as I understand it, uh, Vita games have a crazy attach rate to them. Like, um, the audience may be uh, small, but they're very um, rabid in terms of, like, uh, buying games. Yeah, well, that was something we definitely didn't uh, understand at the time because we didn't realize how bad Vita fans had felt, like, I guess, burned. Um, we were still under the impression that, you know, the Vita was still going fairly strong. Um, I mean, obviously, we already heard that it was kind of, like, dead, but I didn't realize that the uh, the Vita had been shunned by so many big companies at the time, and that's why I had a little bit more hope that Breach and Clear would sell, um, but I still didn't think it would sell that fast, being that we were, like, kind of a, a nobody, and the fact that Breach and Clear... We made more money in two hours than we did in six months being a digital title, so it was kind of like a, we didn't really see any of that happening. Um, and was it hard to, like, print on the Vita? Like, you know, we get a clearance from Sony and all that stuff? Um, it wasn't that it was hard or anything. The, the only thing with the Vita is it does have a longer production time, and they are a little bit more expensive than a PS4. Uh, which is the reason why Breach and Clear was only 1,500 units. Um, it was kind of like basically the last bit of money that Mighty Rabbit had. It was kind of a gamble. Um, had they not sold, we were going to bulldoze them and basically make what did sell rare. Um, and I guess, I don't know where we'd be now, but uh, 
it was it definitely we started the idea of limited run in like May last year, but we didn't officially launch in October because those uh those months leading up to it were basically Josh and I getting everything together and he had to learn a lot of stuff with Sony, um, and to figure out how manufacturing works and using their system. So it it's not easy. And then there's like so many different certifications you have to go through. Like every little piece of that box had its own certification. Like not just cartridge. Hmm. I'm like, got to admit, we don't hear too much about physical distribution in this day and age, um, because you know, like everyone, everything is presumably moving to digital. Um, is that part of why you um, decided to continue on beyond your own titles? Well, uh, one of the reasons we did it is because. Um, I mean, Josh and I both have the same, like, mentality as far as being a collector. We don't really like the uh, the digital age showing up. We're very big on, hey, I spent all this money on something, I want to show it off, versus, hey, I spent all this money on this digital title, and I don't actually own it or the license, and it can be revoked at any time. Um, and another thing he did, we realized when we were doing it, is um, it made us a lot of money doing a physical run, like I said, than it did doing it as a digital title for, like, half a year. And we realized, you know, there's a lot of other developers that have great titles that haven't done a physical. And I wonder if it's because they think that it's really hard to do or maybe they're, uh, they can't do it because they don't want to put up the, the money that it requires because it is a big chunk of change. So we decided to start branching out and asking other people, like, hey, we'll pay for the title up front. We'll offer you a very favorable split. Um, and there's absolutely no risk to you. So it's, it's, it was really hard for a lot of devs, especially early on, to say no. The only people that may have said no originally are just because they didn't know us. Um, but I feel like Oddworld being our first third-party title kind of opened the door uh, for a lot of other people. They put our faith in us, and we didn't let them down. So mm. that was something we definitely wanted to keep doing with for other developers. Yeah, we know Oddworld. That, um, it's been a couple years since we interviewed them, but uh, they're good people. Yeah, they're really good. Yeah. But before Oddworld, uh, there was another game, Saturday Morning RPG. Um, yeah. This is another Mighty Rabbit. That was a... Yeah. Yeah, that was another Mighty Rabbit game. So Breach and Clear was a work-for-hire uh, game that we did with Gun, and we did that first just because we had just ported the Vita version, um, and that kind of made sense. It was the, the first Saturday Morning RPG wasn't ready yet, and we really needed to make money... ASAP at the time, so we did it with Breach and Clear, but the 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 real goal originally, if we were going to go under, was to have uh, Saturday Morning RPG be the physical one, because that was uh, basically Josh's legacy at Mighty Rabbit Studios, that was kind of his baby, his brainchild, so the other idea that we do physical for is basically, it's it's a way of, like, it's a piece of history, it's basically showing our, his legacy, so I worked on Saturday Morning RPG as just like a tester, and like throwing ideas here and there, but that's definitely, like, Josh's, like, you know, his first, like, hey, I'm in the game industry type of deal, like, his first real baby, so he wanted to have something to prove that he did something in the industry, and with digital, you don't really have that, because uh, who knows, in, like, 10 years, whenever the new Windows is, like, that game may not be compatible, or, like, you know, like, when I was working at Ubisoft, I learned that with a lot of, like, older legacy titles, like, they weren't meant to be played on new computers, and they could cause issues. And that wasn't something that Josh wanted to have happen to his game. So that was another reason why we wanted to help developers and do it for ourselves, just so they like, hey, there's your game on a shelf. It's not just a digital key. Hmm. The, uh, the issue of legacy is certainly an um, important one. 
and it's one near to my heart, um, as I'm a historian by trade, and thus the preservation of the past is kind of important. Uh, and you know, as far you know, the preservation of the digital is a thorny issue, uh, to say the least, especially on consoles. Like, you know, there's a lot of concern as you know, digital storefronts like get taken down or whatever. Yeah, there's going to be large portions of the past um, just gone. It may be true from companies' points of view that even when you buy a physical thing, you're only technically buying a license to use it or whatever. But at least with a physical product, that license is a lot harder to revoke than it is with a digital one. I mean, to cite a recent example, which we've mentioned on the show before, is Dark Spore. Now, for those who don't know what Dark Spore is, it was uh, kind of this action RPG in the Spore universe that EA put out a few years ago. And I think, what, what was it, last year or two years ago, they um, took it offline. It, it was one of those online-only titles. Yeah, it had always online DRM. Mm-hmm. And they shut down the servers without releasing a patch, so now when it looks for a server to connect to, it can't find one, so no one can play. And it was it's not even like it's like some super great game or anything, but it's still really disappointing that it's just completely inaccessible and unplayable, even to people who paid for it. Right. Yeah, like, if you paid $60 for it when it was new, you're basically boned now. Right. And this is a big concern as we're going forward, as we're getting more and more games that are using always-online um, DRM or what have you. you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and it's a significant thing, particularly, uh, as our guest is doing, for the Vita, because the Vita, there are not a whole lot of physical Vita games in stores. Right. Uh, at least over here. Like, yeah. You know, it's like, if we're talking about Japan, like, uh, it's a... Probably different. Yeah, it's more common. Um, but anyway, uh, have you tried um, branching out from the PlayStation family at any point? Um, <clears throat> well, just a quick on quick thing to touch that you guys talked about. Um, that is, a, like, the fact that, like, over here, like, GameStop... Walmarts and all those places, like the Vita sections, either gone or like incredibly tiny. Um, and then, like to comment on your whole Japan thing, like I was there in March, and I remember just being in awe of like the the aisles and aisles of Vita games, and it's just like proudly displayed, like hey, come pick up Vita games. Where in America, it's like they pretend it never happened, and it's just a whole different atmosphere over there, and something I wish we had here. Um, but anyway, to answer that other question, the uh, we have thought about it. We really wanted to do, uh, like, Microsoft and Nintendo. So we wanted to do Xbox One and Wii U and, uh, like, maybe 3DS. But the problem with both of those is uh, Nintendo we could probably work with, but the last time we talked to them, um, they gave us... They, they talked about numbers that were just, like, outrageous. Like, I can't remember the exact number, um, and it's probably NDA, but it was some crazy number that was over, like, well over 30,000 to 50,000 or something crazy, and, like, we just... That's too much, and that's not a limited run at all. And, like, I think the price for disc was really expensive, and it just didn't seem worth it, and they didn't seem that interested in doing what we do, um, even though they've done that with a few games recently. Um, like, Devil's Third was kind of like a limited print, mm. and it wasn't even... It was arguably not a great game, and everybody bought it just because it was limited. But anyway, um, Microsoft... Uh, that we've talked to people and we've talked to like people really high up and it seems like we're going to get somewhere and then it just stops. It's the weirdest thing. It, like 
we get people that kind of believe in us, and they're like, oh, what you're doing is awesome, especially after we were like, hey, we have Shadow Complex on PS4. Like, you don't even have that. Like, you have no physical Shadow Complex, and it debuted on your system. And they're like, oh, that's not, that's not right. We need to fix that. And then, like, it just stops. Like, I don't think they're keen on physical media, um, especially since when they originally were, you know, talking about the Xbox One at E3 way back in the day, they were kind of basically showing it off as a digital machine. Like, they, they don't seem very uh, pro-physical, which is disappointing, but one day hopefully we can get there. Um, potentially, potentially. Uh, you know, I couldn't speak for how intractable Microsoft or Nintendo will be in the future, but... Um, have I'm, not surpri- I'm not surprised Nintendo, at least initially, had very high numbers, because they're... Yeah. They're very much in the business of publishing their own games, so... Yeah, it's also... You're probably coming, that, coming from that as a slightly different perspective than a lot of other people are. It's also... It, there may be a difference between Nintendo of America and Nintendo of Europe, because, like, Nintendo of Europe is starting to publish um, indie titles, uh, the uh, Nintendo Selects um, line. I would like to, there's the SteamWorld collection, and there's Fast Racing Neo. You know, one of those is being physical over here, but Fast Racing Neo isn't for whatever reason. Uh, that's Rising Star Games. But, um... Well, they also... Yeah. Anyway, uh, you were saying... I was going to say, uh, Nintendo Europe also has a Fatal Frame 5, which we don't even have. Right, right. Uh, I'm like, and there, there's a few more, like, um, like, they released a, I think a box of Mario vs. Donkey Kong, uh, Tipping Stars, over in Europe. Like... I know, in general, Europe is also more pro-physical stuff than we are, because you also get a lot of um, digital-only games over here that get a physical release in Europe as well, on the PC. Well, I, I, I couldn't say exactly why that is. I'm like, if it's because they still buy more physical stuff than we do, or if it's a cultural thing. But I do know, like, like, um, oh, what is it? Uh, uh, Omaretta got a uh, a physical version in Europe, where we did not, and there's some other examples there. I mean, like, have you looked into doing like region-specific releases yet? Um. <clears throat> We looked into it. The problem with that is just there's a lot of, like, it's a whole different system we have to learn and a whole different group of people you have to talk to. Um, mm-hmm. We had a few people from, like, Europe want us to do, like, physical versions of their games, and we kind of had to explain, like, hey, we're actually, we only have, like, an American um, Sony rep. Like, we don't have, we're not set up to print, uh, like, games in the in uh, the EU region. Um, so, like, it was kind of disappointing to have to say that. Um but, I mean, it's just the way it is right now. We, we, I mean, we probably could in the future when we think about it. The, the one thing we like about Sony a lot is all their stuff can be region-free. Um, yeah, I was going to so say, like, that's probably really helpful. Right. So, yeah, we, we try to keep all the DLC on the disc if we can. Um, and then that way it's kind of like a complete boxed version. So how do you handle international orders? Uh, How do we handle international orders? Mm-hmm. Like, um, uh, say somebody from Europe wants to buy one of your games, or Canada, or something like that. Can they do so? Yes, there will be a time where uh, 
let's say we put out a game that had a physical in another country, um, where we have to actually, we're legally supposed to ban sales. But right now, and for the near future, and any titles that I'm pretty sure we've signed, um, period, I don't have to do that. But there will be a time one day where I'm sure that will come up. But right now, I can ship to any country uh, as long as I'm allowed to ship to them, like, as long as there's no issues with the post office. I could think of some examples. Atlas comes to mind for various reasons. But, yeah, it's like, uh, I'm guessing with indie titles, it's less of an issue. Yeah, it really just depends on the contract they signed with uh, whatever publisher in that region. Hmm. Makes sense. Um, And is there anything you have to do extra for, like, shipping to Canada? Uh, no, there's nothing different. We are trying to, uh, add more countries to what we call a DDP, which is delivery duties, uh, prepaid, basically. Um, I'm not sure I said that abbreviation right, but basically that just means the taxes for them. And, uh, so like with Canada, we're putting that on the, like for orders that contain like two games, we have our DDP list. So that way they don't get hit with a lot of like taxes in Brazil in particular, like we try to ship or personally, and not use, like, our export warehouse, just because apparently they get, like, destroyed on taxes there. Yeah, it's I think there's, like, a vice tax on video games that makes them really expensive. Um, So Brazilians have to get really creative, especially with, like, console games. Like, I think there's, like, an exception on, like, on, like, computers, but... I do admit my knowledge of that situation is kind of fuzzy. Um, is there any place in particular that you don't currently ship to? Uh, North Korea. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, uh, besides the that, that would that would be a nice trick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, like if. Uh, if somebody orders from, like, Japan, can they get one of your games? Yeah, we have a few customers that are in Japan. Um, I don't have any countries that I can't ship to. I have countries I don't like to ship to, but that's about it. (laughs) Uh, Can you mention some of those countries, or is it better to leave that off the record? Uh, No, everybody knows I'm I'm really blunt and honest. It doesn't really matter. And I've explained why I don't like to ship to them when they ask me, but I'll I'll ship them anyway. Um, I'm not a big fan of shipping to South Korea because typically their addresses are too long and my shipping system always yells at me and says, you can only have 35 characters. And I'm like, okay, well, their address is way more than that. What do you want me to do about it? So I always have to like finagle the system in a weird way, like split it up into different columns and it it can be like a real pain, especially, I just, I don't know. Like, like I had one software that I was using where it like cut off part of the address instead of just telling me no. So that was really frustrating. I kept on having this one guy lose his package, and I couldn't figure out why. And finally, one of them came back to me, and I noticed half the address was gone, and I was like, geez, dude. And I sent him an email, and I was like, you have too many, like, there's too many lines on your address. And he's like, well, I use this with Amazon. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm not Amazon, and I don't have that kind of money, so I don't really know what to tell you. But I eventually figured it out. But other ones I don't really like is a lot of, uh, like, Spanish countries. And it's just because they use, like, longitude and latitude, and there's and like their addresses and their addresses are really long too. But I mean, other than that, like I have no problem with the people there, and they're really like nice about it, and they understand that there's a delay because their package had some like crazy thing on it. But 
it's just it's more annoying on a point like our software just is really picky about stuff and like lately my biggest issue is with customers that don't want to put a first and last name and our software is like you have to have both and i'm like you, you don't but okay um so i have to like copy their first and last name or put a period but i've had to figure out a lot of new tricks it's been it's been kind of crazy having our like we closed our fulfillment center like we uh where we fired them basically that we were using and now it's all back in house and i personally shipped uh the first three titles we did back in the day but as our runs got bigger i was just like you know i, I can't handle this and my responsibilities kept growing and i was like going to events and talking to developers more and i was like i don't have time to do this and ship so now it's back in the house and i have people i can like tell to ship but i still have to oversee it and do a lot of the work so it's been kind of like wild getting all this working but at the same time i'm doing this all i can think is like you know shipping's shipping's tough but it's really not that bad once you have like a flow going and like once you figure everything out it's actually like it, it gets a lot simpler and like it just frustrates me even more that i had to fire a fulfillment center for failing at it because i'm like that was literally their only job was to ship things and i'm like how did they mess this up so terribly because it's really not that bad like i'm doing the exact things that they said they were doing and I don't understand how they had the issues they had. I couldn't say, but I'm like, that sounds like an experience. Like, Different countries definitely have different address systems. Yeah. Right. And like Japan, I'm, their addresses are usually fairly short, but they're usually extremely non-indicative of where something actually is. Yeah, I've noticed that with Japan. Like a lot of the addresses will say like, we'll have one extra line that says next to something. And I'm like, oh, okay. So yeah, I suppose the, fax, the fax machine caught on because they were using it in Japan to mm. send people maps to their houses. Wow. Mm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I always wondered about that. Like, and it's also something that they refuse to let go. Like, you can still fax stuff in Japan, mm-hmm. like all, everywhere. No, it's one. Like over here, unless you, I think you're dealing with um, a lawyer. You, really don't deal with the fax machine anymore. Um, um, but I suppose on the same token, what are some of the countries that's, uh, that are really easy to ship to? Um, um, easy, I would say, I mean, America's pretty easy. We get, like, really, the only problem, the only time I have trouble with addresses in America is if they live, like, out in the middle of nowhere, and USPS is like, I don't know what this is. And I'm like, okay, well, you just have to override it. I mean, that's what they typed. Um, and then I'd say maybe Canada's pretty easy. Um, so a lot in Mexico, well, no, Mexico, Mexico address wise, isn't too bad. Um, they have like some addresses that are a little bit too long. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I'd say America's probably the easiest, which I hate to say, but I don't really have, ever have that many issues. I don't have too many issues with Japan either. Like their addresses are pretty straightforward. Um, but yeah, it's usually... A lot of, like, Spanish or Latin American addresses are probably the toughest in South Korea. Just, there's just so many. And, like, uh, I have trouble when people have, like, multiple last names because they might use their family names. That's the other time I have trouble because the system's like, their name can't be this long. And I'm like, well, you're dumb. It can be, but okay. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Especially, uh, you know, America is the domestic country, so it would be easier to ship in. Um, yeah. But, like, how much uh, have you built up your distribution network over the past uh, year or so? Uh, when you say our distribution network, what do you mean exactly? Um, like, um, 
like, how much can you ship, basically? And, do you, like, would you ever, like, do Amazon or even GameStop down the line kind of deal? Oh, um, so we don't want to do GameStop. We looked at Amazon, uh, because there's an Amazon, like, we're in Cary, North Carolina, which is nearby Raleigh, which is the capital of North Carolina, for all those people that wanted to know. And there's a distribution center for Amazon in Raleigh. So we could have used that, and we looked into it, but the only problem with that is we like to put stickers and postcards in all our orders, and we also like to put in, like, random goodies. Like, sometimes we'll slip in, like, a pass release for a customer that we know didn't get one, or, like, a prototype CD from a game, or, like, some kind of random, like, merchandise or swag. Mm-hmm. And if we use the fulfillment center at Amazon, we like, we, we can't really do that. Like, they just pack the games. Like, they don't add anything extra into it, so it's not as personal. And being, like, a two-man operation, like, as close as we are with our fans, it doesn't feel as, like, it feels like we're taking something away from that. Um, we are big fans of mom-and-pop stores, though, so we have been contacted by a lot of stores, like, in random uh, states around uh, the U.S. and even Australia, and, like, uh, they wanted to be like, hey, can I buy some of your games? So we're okay with that, and we let them know, like, hey, we can only sell you so many because it's not fair to everybody, um, and we ask that you only sell it at this price. So we usually tell them they can only sell it at the the price we have, or at most, like, maybe $5. So, like, I, for example, brought some games to, uh, where was I just now? PAX West. Um, and I brought some for a store called Pink Gorilla Gaming in Seattle, and I had them sell a bunch of Octodad that we had left over um, at the show, and then any they had left over, I was like, if you couldn't sell out of them, you can uh, pay for them to me, and I'll, you can sell them at your store. And they were like, okay. And I didn't even have to ask them, like, please don't sell them over the list price. They were like, that's all we're going to sell it for, because they actually buy from us as fans anyway. So they understand the whole thing, and they're not trying to, like, you know, the the evil term to use is scout people on games. Mm. Yes, I, I'd imagine that... Uh the, the potential for that to happen is um, quite large, given that, um, as I understand it, not only is this a limited run in terms of production numbers, but once a title is done, it's done. You're never going to reprint it. Is that correct? Uh, that is correct. And we definitely, uh, any time we were thinking about it, um, there's been a couple prints of games that had limited run, like their own limited runs recently. Um and that we didn't do, and we saw how they performed, and we definitely don't want to ever reprint something. And we can't anyway, because our contract says that once it's done, it's done, and all rights revert back to the uh, developers. But, like, example, we wouldn't reprint our own games that we've pub- or developed as well. Is there any particular reason uh, why that developed? Is it uh, for the, to keep the um, like limited run name correct? Oh, that's the main thing. So, like, when we first started, we were like, oh, we'll reprint things one day. Like, we kind of joked about it, like, internally, but we were like, oh, the more we did it, we were like, our fans seemed to really appreciate it, and we just kind of, like, noticed that as much as people want to demand for open orders on things, when, when it's open, there's no demand. Like, people are like, oh, I can buy this at any time. Or, like, they wait until the last minute, and then, like, you still don't make enough to hit the minimum up. Uh, order quantity with like Sony or something so it's just or you're left with extra stock and our business basically uh, cannot sustain that the way ours works is like once a run's done it, that money literally goes right to the dev and then any share we have goes to the next run so like we don't actually even pay ourselves that much we're doing this to like 
like eventually we'll get paid well enough. We're getting to a point now where like we're pretty we're getting a lot more self sustained and like profitable, but like we were doing this mostly to help other people and just to have these games exist because like I personally really, really, really cannot stand buying a digital title if it's like priced really high or like even in general. I just really don't want to. Like especially now that we have this company, if I know I can eventually one day sway this person into doing a physical version like it helps me out because then there's a game I don't have to buy anymore because I just produce it. Um, and I just rather own the physical version of it and then pay another like license fee. That's, that's money I can use for like something else that I like to collect, like a figure or something. Um, so that's basically how it works. And that's the reason why we don't want to do reprints. And I just, again, like I can't tell you how frustrating it is to see people like, Oh, you guys don't do open orders. You only cater to scalpers. But then you see a game go open and like nobody's buying it. And like, you can check the numbers because like, a lot of stores that do this stuff, you Shopify, and we have Shopify, so we know all the exploits, and you can see how much inventory they sold, and it's just, like, really depressing, because you're like, wow, this game's really good, and all these people demanded this to happen, and now they don't care. Uh, I suppose that kind of feeds into the psychology of scarcity. Like, um, yeah, if you've got, um, say, 2,000 of a copy, and that's it, yeah, you kind of have to pick it up or you're probably never ever going to see that again like reminds me a lot of um, uh, RPGs back in the day it's one reason why I, I still like physical but I don't mind digital existing you know it's like they both have their um, ups and downs like uh, I do like the fact that you know instead of being um, taken off a side that you know there's no danger of Run, like not being able to get that game, but I certainly understand why people would like a physical copy of a game uh, as well. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not 100% against digital because I do buy digital games and I, I I understand the convenience of them. And I'm on the same page as you. There's been a few games here and there that I'm like, oh, I really want this, and then I'm like, oh, well, I didn't get it in time because that was my fault. And I've bought the digital version. Like I've just accepted it. Like I understand digital and like I like that digital exists because worst case scenario is like somebody hoarded all the copies of the physical versions and like destroyed them because there's people out there that do this and I don't know why um then I wouldn't be able to ever play that game like there's a guy going around stealing like hoarding all the Shaq Fu's and destroying them there's like a website dedicated to destroying Shaq Fu and like I played that game as a kid it's terrible but like it's nostalgic for me because it's terrible yeah and this is also gaming rarity is always an annoying thing that is a fact of life, kind of. Right. And it doesn't matter what route you go. Like, um, uh, say, um, Castle of Illusion recently got delisted off of um, digital storefronts. Um, on the one hand, if you didn't buy that game um, when it was available, there's no way to get it now. But if you do have it, it's at least preserved. Um, especially on PC. Uh, this is kind of another difference between the digital distribution um, platforms. Like um, consoles, there's a real worry that um, games are going to vanish, but outside of like the always online sets um, and perhaps the DRM set, like preserving games on PC is a lot easier. Even if you have to go to less than legal routes, it's kind of why I'm... Um, I'm kind of an advocate for piracy in uh, the case of preservation, because if it's either that or Oblivion, yeah, I, I still want the game to exist. 
I'm not going to argue on that one. Yeah. Um, anyway, so um, what other games have you produced over the past year? Um, like we did uh, after Oddworld, we did um, Futuridium, mm-hmm. and then chronologically it was supposed to be Octodad, but then it ended up being Zeodrifter because of production. Um, Zeodrifter, Lost Sea, Octodad, Reboot Moon, Soldner X2, um, G Clear Deadline, Shadow Complex, uh, Dragon Fantasy. Uh, I'm sure I'm forgetting something. Um, we got Shantae coming out. We got uh, Thomas Was Alone, One Way Heroics. Um, that one's really exciting for me because that's Spike Chunsoft. So it's our first. It's not our first Japanese thing we've signed, but it's our first one coming out, and that kind of opens the door to more things. Right. Uh, basically, going back to the the fax machine thing, um, I realized when I was in Japan meeting with some of these companies, and even when we came back, when I came back to America, like. Japan's still very old school on a lot of things. Like, they mailed us contracts. They faxed us stuff. Mm-hmm. And, like, they wanted us to physically sign stuff. They're not cool with, like... And an NDA took 30 days to, like, st- like produce. Whereas in America, you just basically, like, write something on a paper, and you're like, this is an NDA, sign it. And it's like, okay, and that's legally binding somehow. But in, like, Japan, they're like, no, we have to have a team of lawyers look this over. And, like, I actually produced this. Like, it has to be a unique NDA. It can't just be, like, a template. So, like... That was really crazy for me. Um, it's kind of neat, too, because it's kind of like, you know, you read about all that as a kid, and then, like, the game industry, in terms of business, hasn't actually, like, gone very far in Japan. Like, they still treat everything like they did back in the day. And they're very big on trust. So, like, we're working with another, like, when we announced the Silver Case, oh, that's another thing, too. That's our first PC thing. I had met with Playism to them, and when Spike Doonsoft was interested in working with us, they actually spoke to Playism because they, like, I guess knew that we were going to work together, and they asked us about us. Mm. So, like, that's really cool to see, like, all these, like, these uh, Japanese companies basically networking to figure out, like, if we're worth working for, and so far it's been good, and we hope to keep going that route. Like, we haven't screwed over any developers, because, again, we are developers. We know exactly what they're going through, and our goal at the end of the day is, like, even if we have to lose some money to make sure that we stay committed to, like, what we said for the developers, that's what we're going to do. Well, I mean... I, I can see the logic in that. It's like uh, your relationship is a, is maybe the more valuable thing than the um, print run. Yeah, and another thing, too, like, uh, I'm sorry I go off topic so much. The, the uh, Basically, with our runs, like, we don't, they're limited runs, but at the same time, like, we don't purposely try to keep the runs small. If you, if you look at our past numbers, like, we've obviously been trying to grow our numbers more, and we also base it on the game. Uh, so, like, we have, like, Shantae's a really popular game series. So those, we're trying to push somewhere around five to 6,000 units for each game. And that's, like, a really big, that's a large number for us. Like, granted, it's only PS4, so we don't have to split it up between Vita, but that's not something we're used to doing. Um, and, again, like, we can't be, we're, we're a company that, like, cannot sit on back stock. Like, we, we have to sell out in order to find out the next thing. So Fairly I just want fans to know, like, we're not. Yeah. Like we're not we're not purposely trying to limit things. Like originally it was just because we didn't have any money. So as we grow bigger and get more game signed, we're getting bigger and bigger. And honestly, some of the numbers that we we do are de- decided by developers. It's not always us that says like, hey, we should do it this number. Like we had like Oddworld when we originally talked to them didn't want to do high numbers because they didn't think it was going to sell. And I was like, you're Oddworld. Why wouldn't you sell? We had to like convince them like your game is a lot more popular than you're giving it credit for. It. 
So, like, they were kind of like, oh, you really think we can do this? And we're like, yeah. And then, obviously, we did. And they were really happy. So, I think it was better that we were like, kind of like, hey, no, your game's a lot. Like, give yourselves more credit. Thanks for being humble. But, like, this is an odd world. Like, I grew up with this. I know a lot of other people would love to have this. <laughs> that is interesting. I mean, yeah, especially since um, Oddworld sold really well back in the day, like millions upon millions of copies. But uh, maybe they thought that, you know, because Oddworld had been mothballed for so long that, they, you know, that they would have to build themselves back up. Um, yeah, I don't know. They also said, uh, I think something before they talked about was they were kind of, like, hesitant to do physical again because they got burnt by a publisher on, like, one of their last releases. So uh, kind of working with us was basically, like, them kind of, like, stepping out of the house again for the first time. Like, hey, let's see if this is actually worth money again. Let's see if people want it. And then... You know, we gave them such a great experience. They're, like, super happy about it, and, you know, hopefully they come back. They've been telling people to work with us, so that's always a good sign. Mm. Yeah, I'm like, if I'm recalling the Lorne interview, and it's been a couple of years, like, I remember that, yeah, EA and didn't treat them the best, to say the least. Like, and, yeah, they had to kind of retreat from the video game scene for a few years there. So, so it's definitely good to see them back, and uh, and Oddworld being back, especially in the physical realm. Um, anyway, um, has there been any releases so far that have been uh, disappointments in terms of sales? Um, I mean, there's a few we like overgaged. I would never call anything a disappointment um, because we eventually do make the money. They, they might start off saying, like, oh, like, whoever was, like, from a customer's point of view, like, oh, this game isn't worth it, and I don't really want to, like, buy it, and then, like, all of a sudden, like, we pull the stock off. Because the way, the way it works is, like, you know, we obviously need to pay the developers, so, like, we're going to pay them regardless of if it actually sold or not. Um, and then, like, I mean, in cases like Octodad, we didn't quite sell out of Octodads because I obviously had some to sell at PAX. Um, so that one was disappointing and gauge demand. Um, we kind of jumped the gun on like how big our numbers should be. We also did a, a tie pre-order thing, which ended up being kind of like a, while the tie is amazing and working with Gamer was amazing, doing a pre-order was a terrible thing for us and like a logistical nightmare. Like I can't tell you how many emails I answered every day saying like, where's my tie? Your tie was a pre-order. You're going to have to wait. It's not done yet. Where's my tie? I just told you. And then uh, we did a bunch of editions of that, and I think we charged a little more than we should have on the Thai edition, so those didn't sell as well as we hoped. Um, but at the end of the day, now people are like, oh, I never got Octodad. Do you have any Octodad? I really want it. And, like, I've been buying it from you since day one. I'm like, well, then why didn't you buy Octodad? you like, well, I didn't think it was worth getting. But now, all of a sudden, like you said, it's perception. The game's gone, so everybody wants it again, so... What we're going to do with any games that we don't sell out, we're going to have uh, on Black Friday of every year, we're going to sell what stock we have left, um, aside from maybe like a few here and there, just for giveaways that we're going to hold on to. But we're going to sell the bulk of what we have left just because we can't, we don't have warehouse space to really hold all this stuff. And we want to get this money out there. So every Black Friday we'll sell what we have left. Um, and that'll basically be like our end of the year sale. So we're going to be doing that this Black Friday. So we'll have stock from every run that we had, aside from maybe like a few of them might be small. Like Saturday morning RPG and Augur will have probably like small just because mm-hmm. with Oddworld in particular we ran into an issue with customs in France which is that used to be a country I hated shipping to <laughs> uh, just because their customs didn't like us so they kind of withheld 
all these games and then overcharge people and then they got lost in the system. So there's like, I don't know, like 200 to 400 games just gone out of nowhere. So we had to use a lot of like stock that we had reserved for replacements and that kind of left us, left us with almost nothing in terms of like what we had left. Jeez. Uh, I'm glad that situation sorted out, hopefully. Now, um, are there any um, print runs that have truly sold out at this point? Like, you have no stock left? Um, I mean, pretty much all of them have actually sold out. I mean, uh, Octodad was the only case where we, like, uh, like slightly overgaged demand. Like, we didn't have that many extra. Um but we had more than like we're used to. Like we always keep a little bit of stock. We keep a percentage for replacements and loss. So like whatever it says is for sale isn't actually listed because we have to withhold some for you know anything that gets lost in the mail or if it gets damaged, it happens. Um, right, you gotta have a cushion. But, yeah, because like if some guy's like, oh my game got damaged, uh, I know you probably don't have any extra. And like I don't want to be the guy to be like, oh you're right, I don't have any extra. Like that's just bad business, and not everybody's understanding of that. And then we get chargebacks from PayPal, and it's just another nightmare. So that's we have to withhold some. But for the most part, we're pretty much out of everything. Like everything's sold out really well. Um, I mean, for some of our like in-house games, like Breach of Cure Deadline, we have a couple. We have uh, like maybe twenty or thirty extra, of, maybe more than that. I'm not sure. But that was just because that was our own game. We printed more promo copies to give out because it's our like it's our studio um that's about it i mean i'd say octodad was one of the only cases where we went from like having small runs to like jumping way too high at the time instead of gradually jumping um but as it stands now we're pretty much we're out of everything now um is there a like specific size you're reaching for or do you see like this operation growing bigger and bigger and bigger um, I don't. I like to grow bigger and bigger. I think we decided internally a long time ago that the highest we would ever do, like we joked about, like, oh man, what if we could somehow do Final Fantasy VII's PS4 version, um, like just like a dream, like something that would never happen. Like, how many copies do you think we should do? And we agreed that like twenty thousand, that would be it. Like that's it. That's a lot of copies, and then like it's done. And granted, that that probably wouldn't even be enough, but that's a lot for an indie company like us, like a very small publisher. Um, so, I mean, we have numbers. We tell devs, and they're like, what's the lowest you'd like to print of a game? Like, we usually tell people, like, the lowest our fan base can sustain right now, like, if, like, we had to do something, is 3,000. But even then, that's not enough. Dragon Fantasy still sold out really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the last games we signed that was at 3,000. All of the other games coming out are four or higher. So four thousand is like the lowest minimum bar going forward. I mean, we still say three thousand because there are a few titles here and there. But the way our contracts work, a lot of times we tell people is like, we can do three thousand, and finally ready for production, we can regauge interest and also see where our fan base is at. And like, if your game's been like. You know, because we get a lot of demands from people like, hey, I really want to see this game come out. And then we start joking about it, like, okay, what if we could put it out? And if we get a good reaction to it, we'll be like, hey, we'd actually like to print higher than what we originally signed for. And a lot of devs are like, whatever, I'm not paying for it, do it. And then we're like, okay. So. Now, um, now do you approach devs or do they approach you uh, in terms of getting a physical release out? 
Uh, like when we started, I went to uh, PlayStation Experience, mm-hmm. and cold emailed a lot of people. When we first started, it was very much us approaching people. Um, after that, though, we started getting we get it's about fifty fifty now. Like we have a lot of devs that know who we are. So like when I was at PAX uh, West, I would go up to developers and be like, "Hey, I really like your game." I'm. Uh, they'd be like, okay, thanks. And I hand them my card, and they'd be like, holy crap, you're from Limited Run. And I'm like, I'm like, wow, that's that's really crazy. That's like a big deal to you. Just, you know, to me, I'm just me. So, um, having a really good developer, they know who we are, and like, they actually buy from like, Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the very hotline Miami looking font. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's about 50 50 now. Like, Oddworld approached us, which was really neat. And that was, like, again, our first giant third party. It's not the first third party we signed, but it was our first third party that ended up coming out. And, uh, the biggest thing we ever had just like walk up to us and be like, Hey, we really like what you guys are doing. We're collectors. And again, I think that was odd world's way of saying like, Hey, we like to get out of the house again. Uh, you guys don't look like you've been tarnished by anything yet. You, you guys are still like fresh. Let's, uh, let's utilize you uh, before anything bad happens. And hopefully nothing does. Um, are you ever worried that, um, one of these, uh, print runs, uh, will not be successful? Um, I mean, that's a, that's a constant worry at every launch, actually, like, regardless of what, um, what we say and act like, we're like, oh, this run's gonna sell out, hurry up, like, internally, we're all like, oh, God, it's not gonna sell out, like, we were very, like, we could be very pessimistic in the office, um, and, like, we'll even be telling devs, like, it's gonna be okay, like, we're gonna sell so many of your copies, but then internally, we're like, what if we don't sell many copies, like, Again, limited runs two people, and it's very fifty-fifty on like perspective. Josh is a little bit more pessimistic than me. I'm a lot more optimistic. Like he didn't feel like we necessarily hyped up Dragon Fantasy enough, but in reality, we didn't need to, I guess, because it ended up selling out really fast. We were just like, it was hard to. We couldn't do as much marketing for Dragon Fantasy because it kind of like production-wise came in a little late, and we also had issues with firing a fulfillment center. And then I happened to get back from PAX, and while I was at PAX, I had a kidney stone and a sinus infection, so I was kind of out of commission when I got back. So there was a lot of like, oh crap, we didn't like hype up Dragon Fantasy enough. Like, what if it doesn't sell? But internally, I was always like, you know, Dragon Fantasy is very like very aesthetically looking, like it's really good, um, very Sega Saturn Chrono Trigger feel, like. You know, granted what I just said, it wasn't on Sega Saturn, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, and it, it sold out really well. Like, like that was one of those moments where, you know, we did we weren't sure, like, as a group, but it ended up being okay. Hmm. And uh, speaking of marketing, um, like, do the devs handle the marketing, or do you handle the marketing, or is it, like, split or is that on, like, a case-by-case basis? I mean, contractually, and the way we advertise it is, we'll handle marketing. If they, like the way we want devs to like work with us is basically we let them know, like, hey, we want to do this with you. We want to pay for it. We want to do almost all the work for you. Like, we want to take care of as much stuff as we can, so you can focus on whatever game you're working on, or like, you know, uh, if you're on a break or whatever, just kind of like take it easy. Like, we don't want to stress out developers and be like, hey, we want to buy your game. But we're not sure it'll actually sell. We need you to market. Like, I would never tell a dev that. Like, that doesn't make any sense. So, like, we try to handle as much of the marketing as we can. But a lot of developers are happy to work with us. And they're super excited to see their game, like, being sold again. And, like, a lot of cases, developers make more money with us than they did digitally. So, it's kind of, like, a huge deal to them. So, they go out of their way to market it. And they'll even, like, 
like go do interviews. I've seen developers like they'll make ads for us to use with stuff. Like we do stuff on uh the, like the Vita Lounge has a physical magazine they do to their Patreons. Like uh, Niles from East Asia Soft was super into it. He was like, I'll I'll design the ads. Like he's a ironically we met him because he bought from us. So I emailed him. I was like, Hey, I see you're from East Asia Soft and you're our, one of our first customers. Like, what do you do there? And he was like, I'm the CEO. I was like, holy crap. And I was like, I really like Rainbow Moon. We should talk. And then that was basically a courtship. So a lot of developers are actually into collecting, and they get really into the, like what we're doing. Yeah, I've, I've met Niles um, when we were dealing with um, Lost Sea earlier, um, although we didn't interview, uh, interview one of the devs. Anyway, um, so, um, have you ever talked to like um, some of the bigger, like, Third, uh, third parties out there? Like, have you ever approached, say, Square Enix or Sega or what have you about some of their um, smaller titles? Um, so, anybody who, like, follows me on Twitter or anything knows that I'm very, like, I get on these, like, weirdly weird quests and, like, I go kind of out of my way to, like, keep pushing a, pub- like, a developer or third-party publisher or whatever, but like, hey, you didn't do a physical of this game. Like, I want to do it. So, like, everybody already kind of knows, even though I still see this question comes up and it hurts me every time it happens. We did talk to Sega about doing Yakuza 5, um, and they, they listened, and they, they talked about it internally, which is a lot, like, that's a lot to say on Sega's end, because everybody's like, oh, Sega doesn't care about their fans. Well, they actually did talk about it, and they, they took our, they asked us for, like, scenarios that we could give them like hey this is what our basic contract is here's what we're willing to do for you maybe we could do it as a distribution center instead like we'll whatever we have to figure out to make this happen let's talk and they were like okay and then like basically they had a lot of meetings and they came back and they said unfortunately at this time we don't feel like it's going to be something we can do and like it really hurt just because like i'm a huge fan of the series i'm also a sega fanboy and it was like okay i understand but like that's an example of like a we did try to reach out to sega um we even tried reaching out to them to some, about Sonic Mania because I thought that collector's edition didn't make any sense. Um, but again, they were like, "No, this they were like we're not. We don't feel like this is something we can do right now." And like Sonic Mania, we haven't heard anything back, but I already know the answer just because like they went out of their way to make this giant collector's edition, and for whatever reason, chose not to do a game, even though they're advertising as like, "Hey, remember that awesome retro feeling?" Well, too bad. Here's no game, which doesn't make sense to me, but. Um, I can see them saying something like, well, well, if we did a physical with you, that would be kind of like a jerk move to our customers because we sold them a collector's edition without a physical. So, like, I understand that mentality. So, like, I can see them using that as a way to say no, and it sucks because it's just like, well, maybe you should have done it in the first place. But it's just like that's something they would say. And Square Enix is one I've been, like, really pushing on. Um, they're really one I am set to know. But... I've even tried saying, like, hey, you know, this tile's a little bit larger. You know, I wouldn't mind, like, you could test us by doing, like, Adventures of Mana with us. Like, I'd love to do that. Um, mana, mana, whatever. I can't pronounce anything in this world, so whatever. And uh, I've been talking to several people there. Like, like, well, not talking. I've been emailing several people there. And, like, I keep getting somebody that'll be like, oh, this sounds really good. Let me forward this up. And then it just stops. And I'm like, ah. So, like, I'm trying. Um, and, like, they're listening somewhat, so it's nice. And the bigger we get... I've noticed that, like, at PAX West, I went up to some people at Square and was like, hey, I'm Douglas from Limited Run. They're like, oh, I know who Limited Run is. I'm like, cool. Well, you have some games that you didn't do physical. Here's my card. And they're like, awesome. And that's nice to see, because, like, when, I, when we first started, I was like, hey, I'm Douglas from Limited Run. And they're like, what? 
So like it's definitely gotten better. Um, Shadow Complex helped us a lot actually with uh, getting our name out there. A lot of people are really familiar with Epic, so mm-hmm. I had a lot of people know who we were. Like Mega Sixty Four knew who I was because of working with Epic. Right. Yeah. Uh, you're definitely a name I've thought more of in the, you know, lately. In fact, like, we've had some of our guests mention, uh, like, um, uh, Sekai Projects recently. And, uh, you, they were working with you guys on the PlayStation. So, your name is definitely growing. And, yeah, that'll help. It, it reminds me of a friend of mine in growing clouds, you know, in the industry. Yeah, as far as like getting I Am Setsuna, we've actually worked with Square Enix in the past. Uh, it's like multi, you know, large AAA publishers um, are not monoliths, to say the least. Uh, it's like, you know, you work with one uh, part of a company, but that doesn't necessarily mean you can work with another part. Uh, and like, yeah. I noticed that. I noticed that with Sega. It was like, we got a hold of one person at Sega that's like, I love this idea. Let me pass it to the next group, and then he gets to the next group, and they're like, "No, we don't like it." And I'm like, "Okay." Yeah. Which is why we like working with the, you know, like, um, you know who the Square Enix Collective is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like I mean, we work pretty closely with them because they're a small team, and there's not a lot of layers there. But you know, it's like something like uh, the Japanese stuff is uh, pretty closed off, from what I've been told. Like, not even, like, um, the Western side can use, like, Japanese IP. Well, yeah, when we first talked to Koei Tecmo, because mm-hmm. um, everybody saw that happening on Twitter, to Koei Tecmo Europe got a hold of us first, and we were like, hey, we don't actually print this for for Europe. And they were like, okay, well, I'll have to get you in touch with somebody on the American side, but... You know, whatever I wanted to do might, might not be okay with them. And it was like, okay, like, they're not actually the same, like, company. Like, they are, but, like, each side can say no. And that was something I was like, wow, this is kind of crazy. And I was kind of having to, like, learn that experience with each company I talked to that's bigger. Yeah. Uh, like, and, yeah, definitely, Sega's definitely like that. Um, you know, like, Sega Europe uh, handles a lot of the um, strategy stuff. Um, and, and, you know, the whole Sega Europe thing was a, um, like, if you, like, Sega's Japanese stuff, it, it was pretty terrible to live in uh, Japan and, uh, you know, in Europe until uh, Deep Silver stepped up. Like, you know, that, that goes double for us. Like, uh, but, yeah, it's like regionality can be problematic. I'm like, uh, do you ever see yourself expanding beyond two people, or are you seeking to keep it, like, just between you and your partner? I'm sorry, what was that question again? Um, do you seek to keep this a two-man operation, or, like, are you looking to, as you grow, um, will you um, add more people? Oh, no. We, uh, I mean, it'd always be two guys running it, for, for from what I see, because, um, I mean, Josh and I are very, uh, I guess OCD about, like, wanting to, like, get our hands on every single part of the project. We're very, like, hands-on with everything. Um, but we definitely we're definitely going to have to add more people eventually as we grow. It's just because we're already kind of overwhelmed with some of the stuff we have to do, Josh especially, because he still has to run 
limited run games and Mighty Rabbit. Um, and obviously, like, I, there's a lot of stuff he does on Mighty Rabbit that I can't help him with. Um, and I'm, my main focus is limited run, so I, there's just, there's a lot to do, and two people can't do everything. It's something, like, I've had to come to terms with, because, like, at first I was like, no, we can keep doing this, and then eventually I was like, yeah, no, we need to, like, that's the reason why we got a fulfillment center. I didn't want to have to keep shipping myself. And, like, we have people that, like, float between Mighty Rabbit and Limited Run to help, um, but, like, it'll always, it'll always be us two as the primary figures, um, but there's definitely going to be other people, like, working under us, because there's just, there's no way that two people can keep doing this at the rate we're growing. I kind of figured, like, uh, you know, from your, um, information here, it sounds like, yeah, you are having a bit of an issue as it is, like, um, anyway, so what's going on on the Mighty Rabbit's? Uh, side of things in terms of are, are they still making games yeah no we have uh, we have uh, hold on let me count I think we have two two game three one mobile game and two two console games in production and then a couple guys are working on a very secret they're doing a very secret contract work for a major game uh, that may or may not even get credit for like Mighty Rabbit um, but they're working on something that's really big. Like we're contracting our programmers out just to get more work. Um, mm-hmm. And the whole limit run side really helps expand Mighty Rabbit's name. So like uh, Sekai Project, for example, is using limited run to do physical, and then they're using Mighty Rabbit to port Renpy over. Um, right. And that's kind of been like really awesome. So we've gotten like double work with a lot of our stuff. And the whole goal was to make Mighty Rabbit more self-sustained and not have to like depend on limited run so limited run can grow even bigger um and we're bas- we're really getting to the point now where mighty rabbit's getting a lot of work coming in um and it's probably going to have to expand pretty soon too um we're all looking at getting a giant new office to host both places together because right now we took over basically the top floor of this town home office place in Cary. uh like the lawyers on the other side of the office moved out and we just moved all of them to run over there so we own the whole top floor now um, but now that we have to do all our warehousing and uh, shipping, we're, we need even more space. So we're actually looking to get, get like a, a giant building all to ourselves, and then that'll give us like a couple years to grow into. Because uh, um, it's just like I said, it's the growth is ridiculous on both sides at this point. Mm. Well, um, on that note, um, do you ever like? Um, would you ever like split the companies if uh, need? You know, like my, for whatever reason, Mighty Rabbit and Limited Run need to become separate. So would that ever occur? Is it like always going to be two sides of the same coin? Um, no, that that's something that's definitely come up, especially early on with Limited Run. There was a couple times where it mm-hmm. it seemed very apparent that we if we wanted to grow and maybe have like out or if like a bigger company wanted to absorb us, um, and we didn't want to lose any Rabbit. Like, because they're uh, like, if you're a company and you're looking at the numbers, you're like, Lemon Run's get a lot, uh, earning a lot of money, and then you look at Mighty Rabbit and it's a development studio. So it's going to look like it's bleeding money at times, and they're going to be like, oh, why would we keep this part? And they could shut that down. So there, there's definitely a point where we're going to have to separate soon, um, just so that we look a little more attractive to outside investors, and we don't have to worry about Mighty Rabbit going under because whoever invested in us is like, why are you still paying these guys to make games if they're not? making enough money because a lot of people don't understand game development goes up and down all the time like in terms of profit like there might be a month where you're like 
oh, we don't have a lot of money, but then, like, every, you know, everybody's still getting paid, and there's another month where, like, digital sales are up, and you're like, holy crap, they have a lot of money all of a sudden. So we're getting to the point where it's going to have to taper off, like, split. Um, but they'll always be, like, basically united in the fact that, you know, both companies had Josh Stardom, um, and it's, it's it'll be in the same family. Like, that's... Yeah. It'll be like... It, I don't know how we would do it, but there's there's some probably some way business wise that they're like together but not on paper. So they'll always be related. Yeah, I can think of some other companies um, that are set up like that, and, and it makes sense, you know, considering that you know Limited Run and Mighty Rabbit seem to be going in very different directions very quickly. Uh, uh, anyway, so how did the Silver Case? Uh, limited. Is it a limited edition or is it like uh, like a standard edition? Uh, it's a limited edition. It's going to be a big box PC that we're going to do. Oh, jeez. Uh, like uh, the 90s style? Very, very 90s style. Mm. Like, anyway, so um, how did this come about and um, what finally precipitated you to make a, you know, to get into the PC space? Uh, well, to clarify, we don't really want to get into PC. Um, I, mean, I guess I'll explain that story now. So, okay. my, my wife and I were going to take a personal trip to Japan um, in March, and a lot of develop a lot of publishers and developers saw that on Twitter because we had to be like, "Hey, uh, Douglas is going to be answering emails during this time because he'll be in Japan." And then we had a lot of people tweet at us and message us saying, "Like, hey, if you're going to be in Japan, I'd like to talk to you." And one of them was Playism. They were like, hey, we'd like to talk to you about something. Can you meet with us? And I met with a guy named Douglas, ironically, who was born in the same suburb of Atlanta as me, which was the weirdest thing ever. Um, and I sat down with him, and this is where that whole, like, traditional Japanese business comes into mind. He was like, hey, I'd really like to do, I'd really like to, you know, maybe one day do some, like, plays and titles with you. But right now I want to talk to you about doing a title for PC, because I really like what you guys are doing. And I was like, okay, well, we don't do PC. Um, there's there's other people out there that do this. Like, I'd, I'd like to do it, but I don't really know if my business partner would be interested because this is a, it's a whole different territory for us. And there's so many PC games out there. Like, nobody's thinking, like, hey, i got to own every physical PC game because, like, you just can't. And there's just no way. So we were like, I don't really know if I'd like to do this. And I was like, what game is it? And he's like, well, I can't tell you, but it's a really big game. And I was like, okay, well, let's sign an NDA. And he's like, okay, I can get you an NDA in like a month. And I was like, okay, that's really weird. Um, and I was like, uh, I don't really know what to say. And I was like, well, I don't want to lose this business. So I was just kind of like, okay, let's, well, I'll just say yes for now. And, you know, maybe if I have to, this is like a really bad idea. I'll back out later or like suggest someone else. So we kept talking and uh, basically courting over the next few months. And then I saw him again at PAX East. And I was like, hey, Douglas, how's it going? He's like, it's good, Douglas, how are you? And I was like, good. And he's like, hey, we're going to announce that game we're going to work on together. And I was like, okay. And he was like, he like whispered in my ear and handed me a flyer. And he's like, it's a, it's a Suda51 game, the silver case. And I was like, holy crap, it's Suda51? I was like, I don't even care anymore. And I was like, I'm done. This is happening. I was like, I don't, I don't know what the demands are or whatever I just agreed to. And I was like, I'm, I'm just not saying no to Suda51. And, uh... So that's, that's kind of how that started. And then we just kept talking back and forth and basically, like, saying, like, hey, this is what we want to do. And then, like, honestly, though, even though it was Suda 51, we were still kind of like, uh, PCs are kind of scary for us. So we had to, like, the way it's going to work, um, 
it's going to be like pre-orders and then like whatever the pre-orders it's going to be a limited pre-order system and then we'll like do a percentage over that for anybody who didn't pre-order but like that's basically going to be it uh we didn't want to commit to like a solid number just because like this is pc like we have no idea like how that's going to work like any box does a really great job but like right they could do they're not like super super huge like granted we aren't either and that's, like, a scary thing to do. Like, I don't want to commit to something that, like, they're still growing in. Like, I don't want to, like, step on their toes. Like, I really love everybody there. Like, they're friends of mine. So I was like, I really don't want to do PC. But at the same time, I'm not saying no to Suda51. It's a different thing than what IndieBox does. Like, the uh, Collector's Edition, I'm not sure if they announced the price. But it's not, like, it's not cheap. It's not expensive either. But it's, like, it's like buying a full-price PC game, like, back in the day. Like, it's it's a nice box. And it comes with so much stuff. So... Um, yeah, and then we have we have to manufacture that and build those. That's another thing that we don't normally do with console stuff. So that's kind of why we were like, uh, we'll try this. The only reason we're really doing this is because we like we really like Suda Fifty One. I really like Playism. I really like the other Douglas. And like, I really want to like make this work somehow. Um, but in terms of like overall PC, like we're not going to be doing very many PC titles. Like if they if they come around again, it's like a big developer and they're like, we really want to do a PC. Like we like what you did with Suda. I'll be like, okay, you know, but I'm not going to be like, I don't want our fans to think that they have to start buying PC games too. Like, that was another concern we had if we moved on to Xbox. Now, like, that would be just, the PC games would be just on, like, CD-ROM or whatever, Blu-ray or whatever, that for computers, right? And would that be, like, come in a case or... Yeah, so, like, the silver case is going to come, it's going to be a CD-ROM, and you're also going to get a Steam key, kind of like what IndieBox does. So, you don't have to open your box, and obviously, like, my laptop I'm using right now has no CD drive, but I have a Steam key. So, you'll have your your CD, it'll have, like, you know, we're going to have, like, an art book with it, a soundtrack, all this other crazy stuff. Um, and then, it's, like, a traditional thing, and that's another reason why, like, we it's kind of expensive to do, and we don't want to do that all the time. Makes sense. Uh, and I'm guessing you have to, like... You're doing the limited edition stuff, not playism. Yeah, it's 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 a limited run through through us, and it's but it's a playism and grasshopper title. Right. Um, so it's just like any other developer we would do on our normal stuff, except it's for PC, and it's going to be in its own limited run like numbering system. Like it's not going to be part of the main line. It's like limited run PC, and like this will be the first one. And like if we only ever did ten in our lifespan. You know, that one is going to be extremely rare because, like, we're, we didn't do very many of them. Makes sense. I, I suppose a lot of what you may or may not do on PC would depend on how this does. Yeah, this is definitely an experiment, kind of like Reaching Clear on Vita was. Uh, I, I, I get that because, yeah, the, the PC market is very different, both in good and bad ways. Like, uh, in terms of manufacturing, you don't have to worry about um, any particular um, maker, but on the other hand, you don't get that support either. Uh, um, anyway, so uh, I think I also saw that you also got the uh, Mike Bethel uh, games recently. Oh, yeah. Um, Thomas was alone in volume. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, is that releasing this month or next month? Correct. The loan will be Vita and PS4 on October 30th, or no, September 30th. Uh, volume, we haven't picked a date yet, but that'll be in October. 
Right, and um, I think there's also a, like a couple of TVAs, uh, like uh, Cosmic Star Heroine and Y2K. Yeah, so uh, Cosmic Star Heroine will be ready when it's ready. Like they just had the beta come out for uh, Kickstarter backers on Steam. Um, it's according to Robert, from what I've seen on Twitter, it's, it's pretty much done. Uh, they're just like testing everything and finishing a few things. Um, but with them, I, I like with any physical game, I want to give the developers as much time as they need, mm-hmm. so that way when we finally do release it, it's 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 pretty much patched up and ready to go. There's no like game breaking bugs. Um, so I'm not really in a rush for that kind of stuff. I like, take their time. Like again, like we're very help the devs, not try to pressure them into stuff. And then uh, Y2K, I'm really good friends with those guys um, on a personal level, and like they're going through a lot right now, and they kind of want to release the game yeah. while they're having family uh, health issues. So I told them too, like, hey, don't don't stress yourselves out about this. Like take the time you need. Um, just as long as you get that Vita game out and don't cancel it, I'll be happy. And they were like, oh, the Vita's coming, don't worry. And I was like, all right, good. So. Well, uh, I suppose that's another question. Are you are you ever worried about, you know, like, Sony discontinuing, like, the Vita entirely over here um, in the near future? Uh, no, because, I mean, up until recently, Gaijin Works was printing PSP games. And, I mean, that system had been out for over a decade. That is, so, I feel like the, the Vita's got quite a few years left. Right. Niche things can sometimes last a lot longer than anybody expects them to just because they have a niche. And the Vita has that niche of uh, certain genres of particularly Japanese games, but also some indie stuff. This is true. Yeah, like people are still making games for the Dreamcast. Yeah. And it's also, yeah. I do know, like, Sony really pushes um, cross-play. You know, it's like they really push uh, for developers to make a PlayStation Vita version. And cross-buy for a lot of things, too. That... So, so yeah. And, and I suppose it's helped that, you know, the Vita has no clear successor. At least not, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, Here's kind of the sad thing. The fact of the matter is, the Vita may be the last Sony portable. Um, as you know, it's not just that the Vita failed to take off on its own, but you know, it pretty much got curb stomped by both mobile and 3DS. So. Yeah, so, so Sony uh, not only proved that they could not really compete that well with the Nintendo portable market, there is also then the mobile portable market that basically even Nintendo can't even completely compete with. So, Well, I mean, the, Nintendo had to join the mobile market um, just because, yeah, it's too, it's too big to ignore and, you know, it's money being left off the table. I, I don't like Nintendo really tried to resist that, but it it just couldn't be um, resisted anymore. Mm-hmm. And else, like I think Sony is heading to mobile now a- after Pokemon Go. So. So yeah, I would not be at all surprised if if there, especially even if there is a successor for the Vita, if it's like a half-hearted one. Mm-hmm. And you know, guess have to keep watching the stars on that, but, um, uh, 
I, I'm like, I'm trying to, uh, lost my train of thought there, unfortunately. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> is there any, like, systems you wouldn't work on? Um, I, I probably, like, Ouya, I think. I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, more like, um, in terms of PC, is it just Windows or, like, is it several cases just Windows or is it coming to, like, um, Linux and Mac as well? Oh, um, I get, like, blasted for saying this, but I, I'd really rather not do anything on Linux or Mac. Um, even from, like, a development standpoint, like, we weren't very, like, Mm-hmm. I don't know. We like we didn't really like to develop for them on Mighty Rabbit side. Um, and when I worked at Ubisoft, anytime somebody would call me and be like, "I can't get Assassin's Creed to work on my Mac," I'd be like, "Why are you using a Mac for gaming? Like, it's really not meant for that. Like, I know it can, <laughs> but like, you really shouldn't be using this." So probably not. Um, I say that. No, like in the future, I might meet. Studio 51 might come back and be like, "I want to make my next game for Mac for some odd reason, and I want you to do the physical." And I'm gonna be like. Okay, that doesn't make any sense, and I'm gonna say yes for no reason. So, <laughs> something, something, <laughs> damn it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's because I know a lot of indie devs on the PC side. They tend to make their games for like all three platforms. You know, especially like Linux people are kind of weird. Oh, God, yeah. Like, don't get us started. <laughs> yeah, when we were when we were doing. Uh, builds for like Breach and Clear and Breach and Clear Deadline I remember we kind of like we had an office and we tested it um, but we didn't test it very much so basically the Mac build you got was like that was it um, and then Linux for example I think we just ported out the Linux version and then just assumed it worked so I feel like a lot of devs do the same thing they're kind of like hey we did it just to do it but it's not really like the definitive version so don't get mad if we don't do very many updates I can understand that uh, you know, it's like Linux is a very finicky platform to work with. Well, there's too many options, too. Yeah, it, it's like, that, that's kind of why it's finicky. Yeah. You now it's like, you know... <laughs> yeah, I, I think we talked about this not too long ago. You know, it's like, you know, with Windows, it's... You get a lot more consistency because of DirectX and all that stuff. You know, li- Linux is a lot more... Free, but it's also a lot more unstable. It's just a trade-off. Yeah, Linux is for people who want to be able to control all of the stuff that they do in, with their computer and are willing to put in the work for that. And Apple is for people who want to, everything to be the same for all of them and to have a really pretty picture of a fruit on it. Well, with um, <laughs> Linux, you basically have to be able to fix the game yourself if something goes wrong. There's so many variables going wrong, going on with each distribution that it's impossible for a developer to get one right for every single one of them. Uh. Indeed. Um, well, I think we're uh, running low on time here, so just a couple more questions. Um, is there a certain amount of games you're aiming to hit on uh, the PlayStation 4 or PlayStation Vita? Or, uh, or I'm just trying to figure out what's... Uh, is there any particular rationale behind the numbering system? Um, I mean, we feel like I think by the end of the year we'll have 30 titles out. Um, so I know we have like another, I don't, man, the number's crazy how many games we have signed. Sometimes I, uh, I actually 
before I go to an event, I'll call Josh, like, hey, I'm going to try to get this game signed. And he'll be like, it's already signed. And I'm like, what? When? And he's like, oh, I forgot to tell you because I forgot it. I signed it. And I'm like, oh. And then, like, vice versa. He'll be like, hey. Uh, he'll be like, we should get this game. And I'm like, oh, we're already talking to them. And he's like, what? And I'm like, yeah, you're on that chain. And he's like, holy crap. Um, so, I mean, there's a, we have a lot of games coming out. Um, we originally didn't want to do more than two games a month, but there's just no way at the rate we sign games and the rate games are coming out to just keep it at two a month. So uh, I feel like at max we'll have four games come out a month, but we're trying to keep it around two to three just to help everybody's wallets and we don't want to oversaturate our own market. But at the same time, like we had a guy on Twitter that's constantly like sending me, tagging me and developers like, hey, you should do a physical version. At Limited Run, Doug will help you. And I'm like, okay, well... And then, like, he emails me at the same time saying, like, you're releasing too many games. Like, I don't have enough money for this. And I'm like, you keep suggesting developers to work with us. Like, when am I supposed to release these games? So, like, it's kind of a catch-22 because, like, if you want a physical version to exist, I have to put it out. But at the same time, like, I understand I can put out too many. So it's, it's really tricky trying to find that balance. It goes back to, like, even the run size is, like, another tricky thing we have to figure out, like demand versus expectations like what do we really think we can sell um it's all a balancing act oh i i can imagine from the sound of things it can be a very uh thin one yeah like um now are you like are you worried about being able to like fulfill four games a, a, a month if it comes to that are we worried about what uh, are you worried about being able to, like, actually produce the, set, you know, you go up to four games a month, uh, you'll be able to do that? Oh, um, you mean, like, financially, can we afford it? Also, in terms of production, given that you are only, like, two people, you know, you'll be able to handle, like, putting out four games a month, kind of deal. You know, you have the capacity for that, uh, is what I'm asking. Um, yeah, currently we do, and we, um, I mean, it's not easy, but we're expanding, um, like I said, we're trying to get a new building, and we're gonna have, uh, we're thinking about hiring, like, another development studio nearby, like, that needed extra work, like, hey, do you want to help us ship on every other week of the month, like, during these hours, just to make some extra money, and all of them are like, yeah, that'd be awesome, like, because they're, like, friends of ours, and we trust gamers packing games more than we do, like, a random person, that doesn't understand the like, hey, you can't just shove these into an envelope. Um, so like, I I feel like we could definitely support it financially. We're definitely hitting a point where we can afford uh, bigger runs as well as more runs. Um, so it's definitely it's getting better. And I don't I don't see I can see us like if it was more than four, we definitely probably couldn't afford it and couldn't even do it. Like it's just, I mean, there's only so much time in a day. Indeed, you know, <laughs> especially when you're a small operation. I mean, you know. Not only do we have a lot of devs uh, on the program that uh, you know speak the same uh, kind of thing. I mean, we ourselves are only about five people, and there's a lot of stuff we have to do on this program. So it it, it can get um, taxing. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway, so finally, um, I'd like to ask: When are you? Uh, how often do you announce titles, and where do you announce them? on, like, Twitter or on your website uh, via news service? Um, so we have Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, 
Uh, crap, what else? Uh, mailing list, our website. We try to do everything on everything. Um, forums. I get yelled at no matter what I do, though. Like, there's always something I forget. And then I'm like, they're like, why didn't, like, for example, Facebook was mad at us. They're like, you don't update Facebook enough. And then once we started doing that, our forums were like, you don't update your own forums enough. And I'm like, holy crap, there's so many things. Like, the the best way is probably, like, Twitter and the mailing list. Um, and when it comes to announcing things, we tell developers, like, hey, it's your game. It's up to you to announce it. Like, I don't want to announce your game. Like, you did all the work on this. Like, obviously, if it gets to the point where it's about to come out and they haven't announced hey, we need to announce this. But that's not happened. Um, a lot of developers like to wait to see... They have a lot of, like, they're busy. Um, Mike Bethel, for example, is an example of a guy who's, like, really busy all the time. So, like, anytime we were like, hey, we want to announce Thomas was alone or volume, like, it had to be at a time where he was like, okay, well, this is what my calendar allows. Like, I think we should start doing interviews and, like, press uh, press junkets at this time. Like, you have to kind of sort all that, sort all that out with the developer. And, um you know, they also like to have, like, we do a lot of, uh, like, our mock-ups of the cases, basically. They like to have something to show people. So, like, it was really cool that I got to announce Nuclear Throne at um, E3 with Rami. But at the same time, I didn't have anything to really show except for a picture of Rami wearing our shirt. It was like, hey, Nuclear Throne's coming out. But, like, I don't have any art to show. So it's harder to, like, send emails to press people, like, saying, hey, Nuclear Throne's coming because they don't, they don't have anything to really, like, display that on, even though they figured that do it, but I, the developers and ourselves included like to actually have something physical looking digitally to send people. Makes sense. Makes sense. Oh, um, uh, to my colleagues, do you have any final questions uh, for our guest at this point? Um. Do your boxes come with a digital code too, or is it just purely or in beta case cartridge? Uh, right now it's just the the cartridge or disc. Um, we looked into that and we found a lot of people would just sell the codes or both. Um, ah. I'm sure there'll be a game coming down the line here or there, or that's something we can do. Um, but right now it's just the actual. It's a classic thing. It's like you actually have to buy the game. Ah. Mm-hmm. Fan? Or uh, uh I think you've answered most of my questions. It seems like you got a pretty uh interesting and in my opinion it's a pretty valuable thing going here cuz I I really prefer physical games and sometimes when things are I mean it's nice when things are cheap when they're only available digitally but it's usually worth it if you can get a good solid thing that you can hold in your hands and know you're not going to lose. Yeah. Like, especially, like, with most of the Marvel games getting delisted off of, you know, digital storefronts, you can't get those again. So if you were going to get those, you're screwed. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. That, uh, funny thing about digital versus physical, like, when we were, when we had already signed Shantae or were talking to them, I was like, I told Josh, I was like, hey, Shantae's on sale in the PSN store. I just bought them. And he's like, he's like, why would you buy digital games? And I'm like, because they were on sale and, like... I don't know when we're finally printing these, and I wanted to play them. And he was just like <laughs> kind of like laughing about it. And I was like, well, it's convenient. It's on sale. And I was like, I want to own the physical. I'm going to, but, you know, I get, I'm get i impatient, too. Like, if I need to play it, uh, like, that's why I like digital sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like... But if I ever really love the game, I have to have the physical. Yeah, it's like, I think that's something that gets lost in the in this 
weird war of physical versus digital. I'm like, it's not a zero sum game, people. You can have both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, there's nothing stopping you from, you know, buying digital and physical. Like, yeah, one will last you forever. Especially if digital is particularly cheap. Yeah, like, uh, yeah, we had a we had a lot of people like Soldner sold out really quick with us, but a lot of people that did buy it or couldn't get it when it went on sale uh, a couple weeks ago, they actually like picked that up as well. They double dipped because um, uh, East Asia Soft was telling us like, hey, we had a huge influx of sales, and a lot of people on Twitter were like, I own the physical, open it, or I'm lazy and I don't want to switch cartridges. Like I, I'm not gonna lie, that's me sometimes. And they bought the digital version. Yeah, yeah I haven't done that looked yet it on with box. a lot of. I haven't done that yet with a lot of 3DS games I have physical, but I'm severely tempted sometimes. I, I was going to say have a save data transfer tool. Yeah, I was going to say, and plus the box will look good on a shelf. Yeah, and that's another thing, it, um, especially with stu- stuff like the limited run games here. Uh, collectors buy these and they won't open them. Yeah, it, it's like, you know, they they put it up for display or you know. They plan on selling it, or you know, you know, whatever reason they have to not open the box, they're not going to open the box. So they'll buy the digital, you know, to actually play it, or they'll buy a second copy to play it. Yeah, that's actually another reason why we prefer to allow two copies as a limit, because some people like to open one and like Josh is like that. Whereas personally, I don't really care. I'll open it because I don't. I'm not. I've only ever traded in like maybe two games my whole life to GameStop. I'm I'm a very very big hoarder, um, yeah. but so is Josh. But he's also very like he knows there's a market, so he's made money off selling games before, um, like in college when times were tough. So like he he's more on the mentality of only two. Um, and personally, like people are like, oh, if you sell two, you're opening the doors for scalpers. And I'm like, honestly, if they play by the rules, I really don't care. If they go out of their way to create multiple accounts or like try to order more than two then I'm going to step in and cancel them or ban them in some cases. Like, if you play by our rules and you want to buy two and you're going to sell one, like, I don't care. That's your prerogative. Like, you could have bought one and sold it. Like, that's that was your choice. Like, I can't stop you. Yeah, one copy scalping is not going to be a huge issue, even if people, if people can buy two issues and sell one. It's when, like, the first guy who gets to the page five seconds after it goes live, and I'm being generous there, uh, like, buys 100 copies and sells 99 of them. Yeah, no, somebody tried doing that with uh, Bridge and Clear because we didn't have a limit, and he spent $15,000 on our store. And I was like, we, at the time, we were kind of like hesitant to cancel it because we were like, oh, we, we don't have any money, and like we really needed money. And but at the same time, I was like, I don't want this guy owning $15,000 worth of a game that we printed only 1,500 copies of. So we had to like contact him and be like, hey, you can't have all these. I'm sorry. Yeah, oh, that. <laughs> and thus, a limit was instituted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's where it came. Yeah. All right, then. I, I think that'll about do it. Um, uh, um, Doug, I'd like to thank you very, very much for taking time out of your schedule uh, to join us this evening. It was a lovely interview. Um, hopefully, we'll have you on again uh, sometime in the future, you know, as you've built the business up. Yeah. No, no, thank you for having me. I mean... You only took time out of my uh, trying to 100% PS4 Final Fantasy 7. You know, it's no big deal. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. And, uh, like I said, you know, it was a good interview. And 
we look forward to seeing what you do in the future. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, I, I had a lot of fun. Feel free to invite me again. I'm uh. No. No problem. Try not to be try not to be pretentious or anything. I like to like I don't care who they are. If they're like, hey, you want to come on a podcast? I'm like, sure, why not? Because you know, I always like really I always I've enjoyed meeting people in the game industry that are very humble and that I strive to be that way. I don't ever want to be that guy that's like I'm too big for your podcast. Like, why would you say that? Like, I can't be anywhere without you. <laughs> Especially because who knows what could happen? We could be the next IGN one day. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like, maybe one day, but yeah, it's like. Believe me, we, we it's been surprising who we've had on our program, like just recently. Uh, but but yeah, it's, uh, that's always a good philosophy to have. Anyway, that'll about do it for this installment of uh, Fragments of Silicon. Be sure to join us for our regular show happening tomorrow night at nine. Um, we're supposed to have Sebastian Gonzalez Campea of Ace Team on the program. Um, but they haven't really confirmed with us. They did give our, their Skype credentials back back when we set this up. So basically, it's kind of a 50-50 shot if they show up. Uh, if they don't, then we'll do a double shot of a topic of discussion. Um, uh, let's see. We've got Shiny Entertainment and Emulation lined up in case that happens. And until oh, man, uh, shiny. Yeah. And until tomorrow, I wish you good gaming. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.